Protect your 5 to 11-year-old with a coronavirus vaccine. Getting vaccinated will help keep your kids safe. And booking is fast and simple. If you have any questions, your GP or pharmacist has the answers. All the support you need to help make vaccination a more positive experience is also available. With children eligible now, know the how, what and when of vaccination for 5 to 11-year-olds. To find out where and how to book, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. It calls out. It's the voice deep in your soul that says, hey, check your ANZ financial wellbeing score. And you say, who is that? And the voice says, I'm the voice deep in your soul and stop asking questions. And you say, where do I check my score? And the voice says, well, obviously online. And what did I say about those questions? And you say, I don't like your attitude. I'm leaving to go check my score. And the voice says, good. Search ANZ Financial Wellbeings. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views and we're going to continue with our legal uh, series. And this week we're going to go into mental health. And our guest today is another great member of the Maryland Bar Association who volunteered their time and their experience and expertise with this. This is Dan Mayer. He's like me. He's a native New Yorker, but has made Baltimore his home after going to law school here. So obviously the best of the best, obviously a good person. <laughs> How are you, Dan? Thanks for coming into the Garden Views. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. It's my pleasure. Thank you again. Uh, so... Dan is the principal in his own firm. Mayor Law, uh, Law is a boutique law practice which specializes in representing mental health practitioners and practices. Uh, he's the principal. I may have said that twice already. Um, and he is a uh, he's been a member of the bar since 2009. So going into year lucky 13, I suppose. Um, the mission of his firm is to provide top notch legal services to the healthcare. Uh, practices and the mental health practitioners uh, throughout the the state. Uh, he also has a podcast where he deals with legal ethics and protecting your practice as well. So he can talk about that at the end when he gives you all of his information. Um, Mayor Law Law is off. I keep saying law like I can't say the word law, which is <laughs> a really bad trait in, in in my in both of my careers. One speaking in the podcast, the other being a lawyer, so I should be able to say the word <laughs> law. Uh, mayor law is often an outside counsel for other uh, practitioners, uh, even if they maybe have their own in-house counsel, um, but they are the people that the experts turn to. Uh, they pride themselves on a proactive approach and hopefully keep the little things from turning into big things and maybe even avoiding the little things as well. Um, I've talked a little bit about his Wonderful pedigree from New York. He went to Baltimore Law, uh, graduated in 2008, and he's got a wife and a family here. And, his, and the reason I raise that is because he's got sort of some inside help at home because his wife is a licensed psychologist as well. Yes. Yeah. So that is definitely uh, probably gives you some insight. So thank you so well, much. makes marriage interesting too, you know, when you have a lawyer <laughs> and a psychologist married to each other. It makes it interesting. <laughs> combustible that's what you call it combustible 
So yeah, um, Dan, thank you again so much. Um, this is an area where I probably know just enough to be dangerous, although I was in-house counsel for what's called a, a PRP, Psychiatric uh, Rehabilitation Program, but that's really sort of on the low scale of the, of the Maryland practices. And really I was there mostly to get them licensed and sort of up and running and then went off to do other things. So I wasn't even really there for the actual dispensation of, of care, except in the very beginning. So, you know, why don't you give us your the, the 101 or the 10,000 foot level, and then we'll get into some specifics. Sure. You know, so I, I started my practice because there wasn't a lot of people doing this. Um, I talked to my wife, as you mentioned, a psychologist. Um, she has her own practice. Um, I talked to other practitioners and they were all like, you know, we go to attorneys, you know, business attorney, um, uh, employment attorney, and they can answer certain questions, but there's other aspects of HIPAA and state, you know, federal law and, um, uh, you know, our own ethical boards and, and, and codes that, that they don't know. Um, and I realized there was a niche there. And uh, essentially, long story short, I had helped my, my wife and her practice kind of get up and running and I realized I really enjoyed it. Um, and you know, in 2018, I started my own practice. Um, and really what we do is just exactly like you said, uh, my focus is always, you know, I want to be preventative. I'd rather not deal with, you know, I'd rather avoid, um, bad situations coming up. Uh, so the goal is always to be preventative, to help with work with practices, to make sure that, um, they're in compliance, that they're doing things the right way. Um, but of course, on the other side of the coin, if things do come up, you know, and sometimes it's unavoidable, sometimes it's unexpected, um, then we deal with it. Um, we are more of, uh, outside, as you mentioned as well, an outside counsel relationship. Um, I often tell my clients that, you know, if it comes to licensing or it comes to creating a business entity, that type of thing, documents, whatever needed, we can handle it. But much like with doctors, uh, you know, you're not going to go to a brain surgeon. If you, need, you know, you're going to go to a brain surgeon, if you need brain surgery. You're not going to go to a knee doctor for you need brain surgery. Um, right. There are times, though, where I may say to my client, look, we really need a specialized attorney here, a tax attorney or litigation attorney. Um, and as you know, being part of the Maryland legal community, it's, it's really beneficial that in some ways it's, it's, it's a very small, small close-knit community um, because I have a lot of connections and I can refer people to um, if needed. Um, but it's really just that. It's helping practices be compliant and you know, our main focus is looking at how do we help them so they can grow and thrive. For me, the passion behind it comes that by helping these practices, I feel in some way I'm giving back to the community. Um, mental health in this country is one of the most um, underfunded, uh, underutilized um, healthcare services, but there's an abundance need for it. Uh, and there's not enough adequate resources. If you talk to most or a lot of practitioners around in this area, at least, most of them have waiting lists. Um, so to me, the more that I can help practices grow, start, thrive, the more then I can make sure that there are people doing this to help those in need. And those are just the, the for folks who can pay for the treatment or have uh, health insurance that covers it. Yes, um, correct. And that's another problem, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and, and, you know, not that, not that the folks that don't have the money are more of the problem or have a disproportionate amount of mental health. I, I have no idea whether there's any statistics on that or otherwise, but certainly if they can't have any access to it, um, you know, an otherwise manageable or treatable condition, 
is probably only going to deteriorate and manifest itself in plenty of ways from self-harm to harm to the community or and usually you don't jump straight to self-harm you go through a a spiral of deterioration which probably leads to you know one way or another we're all paying we all pay for people's medicaid there we're paying the medical bills anyway so uh it is a giant problem in in very high level and i'm going to I'm going to try to oversimplify things a ton. Mm -hmm. Unless you're on federal enclaves, the federal government doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to do with medical care, uh, except for Medicare and the money and oversight of Medicaid uh, Mm -hmm. for the most part. Uh, It's more on the state level. Uh, Obviously, you know, your medical professionals from your physical therapist, your masseuse, your chiropractor, your, you know, to your neurosurgeon, nurse, whatever you can think of, psychologist, psychiatrist, they go to a, a school, they take, a, they take an exam in whatever state they want to be board certified, they get their professional certificate in that state or states, um, that is their, their license. Certain practices need to have other types of licenses, uh, especially ones that brick and mortar, um, the, you know, some are as, as simple as they need to have, you know, disabled accessible, you know, uh, you know, uh, rampways and things like that. They need to have a bathroom. There needs to be a safe, you know, backdoor for fire codes. Uh, uh, others, there's privacy rights involving HIPAA where, you know, f- storage of files, there needs to be a, a locked area for files. Files can't be left around. There's got to be a procedure right. for your, you know, uh, your counselors or, or if you do remote training, obviously, if you don't keep paper, which you, I'm sure pretty much they all do. If you do, if you do computer, you need no, to have. You be surprised. Most have moved to electronic health records now. Yeah. Many, many have at least. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to have equivalent security for, uh, you know, for electronic, Correct. which may be stricter. I mean, believe it or not, you're probably more susceptible to a hack than, than you are to a burglar coming in and trying to go through health records. Uh, Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true because yes, I guess someone could break into your office and go through your paperwork and your file, your file folder, your, uh, you know, file cabinet, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and rifle through and steal stuff or there could be a fire, you know, other or other, uh, external force, I guess that could harm or, or threaten the records. But yeah, absolutely. This day and age is the, the kind of irony, I think, in some ways, and they're connected, obviously, is that as more and more people have started using electronic health records, transmitting, uh, you know, digital means, um, storing them by digital means, the it's a much bigger uh, prize. It's much easier if you're not careful to um, to make them so that they're if they're not secure, that someone can get into it. And because of the nature of what's often contained in you know, protected authorization, which could be anything from your address to your social security number to, you know, your name, your diagnosis. Um, it's very valuable information for hackers or other near-do-wells to want to get their hands on. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, uh, the sky's the limit. And uh, a lot of you folks might be asking out there, well, what are you just, you know, what, what were you saying does that have to do with mental health care? Not necessarily. That that was That's about all health care, including mental health. I wanted to just sort of sort of get that stuff out of the way so that we could focus on in. Um, so I, I think that a lot of times where we, when mental health becomes part of 
you know, the conversation is either when it's happening to you, someone in your family or six degrees of separation, or you, you know, you see it play out in the news, whether you feel a certain celebrity is melting down in, in public and you're sort of seeing the train wreck and slow to fast motion, or there's a, a you know, a shooter, active shooter situation, um, or you hear about uh, PTSD and, and veterans uh, or, you know, homeless people and, and acting out in, you know, in, uh, you know, maybe the subway or whatever it is. You know, that's when it usually comes to the fore. And then there's always like, well, wh- why couldn't anyone help these people? There were, there were red flags. This is, this is not a, it's not a gun problem. It's a mental health problem. This is not a, this problem. It's a, and, and, you know, and I think that's always oversimplification. I think there's always a confluence of sure. factors into everything, but mental health is a, is a huge one. And, it probably had a stigma associated with it, probably still does to an extent, but, you know, probably until 20 years, I don't know that anyone was really fighting back to try and say, hey, your brain is an organ just like your heart. And if there's something wrong with your brain, it's nothing more to be ashamed of than than if there is with your heart or your kidney or your knee or whatever. So, I mean, would you agree that the the stigma might be one of the biggest reasons why there's a problem and one of the biggest reasons why there seems to be sort of like almost like a populist resistance to funding uh programs so i'm gonna i that's i I think there's three points here number one i want to touch on something you said and i think that these the issue with a lack of access the last lack of funding lack of support uh for mental health in this country that still remains vastly underfunded um there's not enough resources to go around I think that directly contributes to what you were just saying about well, why is there an increase in school shootings? Why is there, you know, when you see a celebrity having a meltdown, you see something in the news, or you have a friend or family member, and the answer is always like, well, they 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 couldn't get treatment. I think well, why didn't they ever treat them? A lot of times it's because they can't get access because you know for this for example, and I was saying this to you earlier, uh, in this area where we are in Maryland, um, for example, a lot of the mental health practices have long waiting lists. Right, and you could wait yeah. six months to get out. If you're in a crisis, that's a really serious situation. Uh, the second thing I think, to your point, is um, that yeah, I absolutely think that when it comes to uh, the access and the ability to provide it, mental health is easy to cut. Right, it's one of the first things I would argue gets cut in the budget because it's not tangible. Right, you need to fund the police. You need to, you know, fund streets, and you need to fund school education. Um, you need to fund even medical, medical care, hospitals, things like that. So those are all things that people can look at and say, if you take those away, there's a tangible result of what happens when you remove them. Mental health is a lot more, I guess, less tangible. Right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's 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 you know it's more subversive. It's and you and you mentioned about taboo, and I want to get to that. Right. So if mental health is not something we're talking about, if mental health is something that a lot of people keep themselves or keep quiet behind closed doors, um, you know, I think it's not something that people up until recently have been more willing to talk about or be open about. And so it's easy to say, okay, well, what are we going to cut? We have to cut somewhere. Okay, let's cut the mental health budget. You know, let's cut the number of hospital beds in state facilities. You know, let's cut, you know, this or that um, that's directly related to health care, uh, mental health care. Right. And so it's not then until all of a sudden. Right. You have someone who was in a hospital. Right. Was there because they were dangerous themselves or others. They get released. Um, then they go off and do something um, because they didn't have anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned stigma. Um, 
and, and Austin. You know, one of the things is that I do agree that it's less so today than it's been in the past, I think, but I, it's still a big problem. I think there is a stigma when it comes to mental health. Yeah, there is a, you know, someone says, well, that person has um, schizophrenia, that person's bipolar. I think whether people want to admit it or not, there's sometimes people are in their, in their minds, even if it's, it's said quietly themselves, you automatically label that person. That person automatically comes labeled. There's a stigma there. Um, and I think that that is a barrier to getting help too. I'm not someone who needs help. I don't need to be, you know, I don't know. I can't be seen as weak, you know, mm-hmm. asking someone else to help me you know, means that there's something wrong with me. Whereas like, if you had a cough that wouldn't go away, you'd go to the doctor. If you, you know, have broke your leg, you'd go get it fixed. You wouldn't want to leave it unbroken. The same thing is true. If you are having severe depression, if you're having suicidal thoughts, it's not a matter of weakness. It's that there is something going on and you should get help. Um, and I think there's, you know, sometimes people are reluctant to do that, to admit help. And some families are, are not willing to admit that a family member needs help. Um, so I think that all those kind of factors kind of contribute to why then you pick up the newspaper and you see all of a sudden, you know, something like a school shooting, right? Or something like that. And you're like, why wasn't anyone trying to help this person? First of all, we don't know that they weren't, but secondly, you know, could be, there's any number of that factors going on. We in this country, in my opinion, personally, this is just my personal opinion, uh, don't do a good enough job with funding mental health. We just don't. Yeah, I, I think that that's certainly the case. I don't know who said it, but at, at some point, some political pundit said, at some point, uh, politicians stopped doing what they knew how to do. They stopped caring about trying to pick up the garbage and, and you know deliver mail, and they started focusing on doing things that nobody knew how to do. So they would focus on poverty. Nobody knows how to fix poverty. They would focus. And it seems like you know there's also this rugged sort of Americana pride. I mean, I think you touched on it where people are like. Finding it hard to get motivated to exercise? Join the push up challenge and complete 3,139 push ups over 24 days in June while having fun, getting fit, and shining a spotlight on mental health in Australia. Register for free at thepushupchallenge.com.au. Well, you know, just pick your, yourself from your bootstraps, get out of bed, right. just, you know, you know, make your bed every day and, and, and you can overcome it. And, and it, it's really just not that simple for a, a lot of people. Uh, and, and in a lot of cases, it's simply impossible. Not that silly, but that's still sort of bred into us, you know, this, uh, whatever you want to call that, uh, that Americana, you know, the, uh, uh, the Ron Swanson, you know, you build your yeah, own furniture. That's right. right. They're, they're like, yeah, like Mr. Tough Guy. I'm not, you know, I can't be hurt. I'm, I'm invulnerable. Like, you know, I'm not in need of, yeah, I told you, yeah. The whole Yellowstone Absolutely. mentality. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, part of it is completely on a different huge topic is that our constitution, our system of government really is based on not being proactive. It's being reactive. You know, there's the old precept, yeah. it's better that a hundred guilty men go free than then one innocent man go to prison. And all of you can point to a million cases where that hasn't been the case and where, you know, we don't necessarily always feel that way. But we don't have a pro- much of a preventative system. It, it's always touch and go when law enforcement of the government enters your life proactively. Uh, that That's always subject to discrimination. The, the more vulnerable are usually the poor and the disenfranchised. The rich can sort of take care of themselves. They'll assert their Fifth Amendment rights. They'll call their lawyer. They'll be 
unavailable. They'll be in another state vacationing in Paris or whatever. But instead of, since we probably can't do anything about that at the moment, we we can talk about on a broad scale, and, and the audience should understand that, you know, that we're both Maryland lawyers, that Dan's going to try to extrapolate to the best can and make this general, but obviously the, the state that we're in is going to influence a little bit. But when there is somebody who seems to be having a difficulty with mental health and you are a family member, a third person or whatever, what, what can you do? How can you, how can you get help for them or really yourself? If you feel like you're, you're in jeopardy, but how can you get the preventative inter intervention, intervention from a, a government resource? Well, it's really, t- it, it can be really tough because, you know, you, there's always a, a desire and, and I agree with this to want to protect the individual rights while ensuring the safety of the person or others, right? Because, you know, if you talk about involuntary commitment, you know, what that means essentially is you're putting someone in a uh, psych facility of some sort um, against their will, generally, right? And so there are very specific rules and, and procedures in place you know, about when that can happen or how it can happen, what's the process, because, you know, like Maryland, for example, we want to be careful that someone's not being held against their will. It used to be um, a long time ago that, you know, you could drop someone out. You could, you could put someone in a mental institution. You could check them in the mental hospital, you know, and, and they could sit there until, you know, someone deemed them able to be released. Um, you know, I consider those, again, I'm not a practitioner, I'm, I'm an attorney, but being married to a psychologist, talking to practitioners, I think we can say that those were kind of um, the dark ages. You know, that was when there wasn't that balance, and now there is. And I think that's a good thing. But sometimes, and I've seen this, that it can be hard to get someone who's an adult treatment because someone does, in some manner, have a right to say, I don't want to be treated, Mm -hmm. right? It's my right. I don't want to be treated, right? You know, so where I see that coming up a lot is with families. You know, parents with a child um, who's maybe in their twenties or thirties, um, you know, or um, you know, a sister or a brother or spouse, um, sure. you know. And so the answer to your question is uh, in Maryland, for example, and in many states, you know, it's looking at are they a danger to themselves or others. And you know, when you, one of the ways you can do it is through an emergency petition. Essentially, you are you walk into the clerk's office and you file to do an emergency petition, and you have to show why it is that you are petitioning court and why the court should grant you this um, to allow this person to be brought for a medical uh, and psychiatric evaluation, essentially, right? So that's one of the, the, the best ways. The other way is, you know, the person is willing to go themselves. So a lot of times practices will come to me and say, we've got a situation, right? Or we want to kind of figure out what our policies are. What do we do when someone walks in our office and we think, oh my gosh, this person is a danger to themselves. They are threatening to go leave off and go, you know, go kill themselves, or they are threatening to go harm someone, right? So in that case, you know, you can encourage them to try to go check themselves into an ER for evaluation if they're willing to go. A lot of times they're not. Um, if necessary, a practitioner can, you know, call the police. They can get the person the EP brought to the um, uh, the hospital medical facility. Uh, generally, as I, you know. They're not a medical professional, but my understanding is they'll be triaged, they'll be evaluated medically, make sure there's, you know, they're not drunk, they're not intoxicated, or you know, influence, things like that. Um, at some point, then they'll be evaluated, um, determine 
what's going on. Um, in Maryland, it usually takes about two professionals, a, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist, something like that, to determine if someone is a danger to themselves or others. Um, generally, again, going back to individual rights, the person is offered, if they're able to, to, to cop, be cop and understand what they're signing, they can be offered a volunteer. Do you, are you sure. going to voluntarily agree to receive, receive uh, treatment? And they can say no. And if the staff thinks they're still a danger to themselves or others, they can then try to move them move to involuntary commitment. Um, so that's, that's kind of the process how to get them into the system. You know, um, you know, and, and, and of course, you have to, if you're doing EP, you have to be able to show cause. You have to show this is what's happening and why I think that, you know, I need the courts to, to order this. And once they have that, the police then can go, you know, take that and go get the person and bring them in for evaluation if necessary. Is there a... But I will say that just, I want to add one thing. I will say, having worked with clients and their families where the client's been sitting in a psychiatric ER for like three days, that's extremely traumatic to them. Even if they are you know, um, you know, essentially in a, such a state that they have no idea what's happening. It's extremely traumatic, emotionally traumatic. To them. So I always am like, if the best thing to happen is if the family can help the person, get the person in the car, walk them to, the, you know, drive them and get them in the hospital with family around them. It's a lot less traumatic than having the police go find them, you know, and cart them off to the, to the ER. Yeah, my, my understanding is that there's a, a another way which is just as intrusive without the, the psychiatrist or the professional uh, being on the exact front end, and that is that you can call the police or a first responder, 911 yes. or whatever, mm-hmm. and they'll come and right. and if they make the determination that someone yes. appears to be, you know, in, in some sort of psychotic state, they can take them and they, I think there's like a 48 hour hole, which can yeah. be extended to 96. And until, and by then somebody, means, yeah. they need to get that two professional evaluation and mm-hmm. my, but i also and that's how poli- and that's how the practices will do it if someone has a, someone at their at their at their office where this is the case they can do that that all happens sometimes but anyone can do that i mean so yeah, i mean literally course, yeah, yeah. For, for better or for worse anyone can institute that now whether the the police or the the emts think that there's an issue or not i mean i don't know if they are on the side of caution or if they are on the side of i don't want the paperwork or, it, you know, if it's case by case, or, or, or probably varies from person to person, county to county, municipality to municipality. It's probably completely all over the place. But what I do know is that there is a, there's a division of the public defender's office um, that assigns public defenders to indigent yes. people who I'm sure that they tell those people do not voluntarily consent to anything, no matter what, is <laughs> probably what happens. And then I guess there 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 is there must be some sort of I guess show cause evidentiary mm-hmm. hearing before someone yeah. to decide whether yeah, so, or not they, they can be held yeah, or not. So, correct. Yeah. So what will happen is you know, if someone says, no, I'm not going to sign a voluntary, you know, in Maryland, for example, um, if I'm not going to sign a voluntary and the staff believes that they are danger themselves to others, um, they can move to try to involuntarily hold them. Um, at that point, within 10 days, they have to have a hearing um, to determine with it, with an administrative law judge, um, to determine whether the hospital or facility has the right to to, to detain this person against their rights, against now, their will. They're being held them. while they're waiting for this 10 days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely, they are, yeah. And I will tell you, I've met with, with, with clients where they're sitting in, the, in a uh, site facility, um, and some of them are very with it. They mm-hmm. understand exactly what's happening, and they're just like, I want to go home, right? There's nothing wrong with me. I want to go home. Um, and it's extremely traumatic for them. It can be. 
Um, I've attended these hearings and personally I find they're not the easiest to win. And sometimes it gets even more complicated because sometimes you're representing a family or, or the person themselves, um, more often the person themselves and they, they want to leave. And the hospital is saying, look, this person really needs help. And you're realizing this person really needs help. And actually what's best for the person is actually to stay in the hospital, believe it or not, where they can get treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes then that's a matter of counseling where I'm talking to the client, look, you know, we stay here, let's work with the hospital, let's figure this out. They'll treat you. They don't want to keep you here long-term. Hospital, hospitals don't want people long-term. They want you in and out. So they're going to treat you as long as they need, you know, to get you stabilized, get you have a plan in the community, and they're, they're going to get you out. So typically, even when we lose, when I've, when I've lost these before, when we lose it, you know, the judge says, I don't agree. There is a danger of self or others. We are going to allow a hospital to hold the person. Um, you know, I would say within two to three weeks, sometimes the person's out. Yeah, two things. Is one, yeah. one just an observation, and one is a question for you, which is uh, the observation is that if you are borderline or, or you know, you, you really are with it, but you've been there for the allowable 48 to 96 hours, and then you're waiting for this 10-day hearing, so you've been there maybe, you know, two full weeks. If you're like me, you may be starting to lose your temper and going a little stir crazy and not exactly be on your best behavior. And while maybe you don't, you don't have a mental health issue, maybe you just have a temper issue or you're frustrated or you feel helpless yeah. and you, you know, act out like a person might. And they're all this time they're building evidence against you. Uh, so it seems to me that, 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 that as an observation that you'd have to be a really, you'd have to be a really patient person and really objective and almost have to remove yourself from the situation, but not look like a weirdo that you're meditating in the corner of the room, you know, looking, looking for your chakras to guide you. Cause even that could possibly be used against you, even though, you know, probably 15% of the people out there do yoga or some type of meditation you know, to get through their days. So that, that's a really good point. And, this is where I think my role when I'm, when I've been in this position is I'm not acting as an attorney almost in some ways. It doesn't feel like at that point I'm acting as essentially um, an advisor. I'm an advocate. Um, and I've had this exact conversation with people where they are exactly as you describe it. You know, they're angry, they're upset, you know, they're not in a good mood because they're like, I don't want to be here. You know, they keep trying to give me medication. They keep, you know, like, and they, they lash out, right? I'm not, necessarily physically it could be just verbally you know they lose their temper you know the truth of the matter is is that they're in the facility with others who may be severely also mentally ill right and, and they may have lost their job they, they haven't shown right. up and the reason right. they haven't they shown their up job, they're missing out yeah. yeah i've represented people where they're sitting in a hospital over the weekend and they can't even get we can't even get anything done until monday or tuesday and meanwhile that weekend they've had it's their children's birthday now they're missing a kid's birthday. Right. So, yeah, they're not always in the best place. And I literally have to say to them, look, I'm going to need you to do me a favor here. I need you. When you feel you're about to lose it, I need you to walk back to your room, go take a breather, go read a book, do whatever, sit and chill. I don't care. You know, I need you to watch, be on your best behavior around the hospital staff. And I'll say that. I've, I've had that conversation because I'm like, you're right. You said it just now. Yeah, they are making notes. And I've gotten to these hearings where they possibly produce a record like, well, they were combative on this day. They were combative this day, refused medication on this day, you know, and they have records of it all, you know? And so I'm always like, the more you can show that, Hey, okay, I get it. It sucks that I'm here, 
you know, I'm going to work with you because I want to get out. You're not combative. You're, you know, compliant. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying, look, it's, it doesn't, it's not a bad situation. But if you feel yourself getting mad, instead of yelling at the nurse, walk back to your room. Yeah, it's the only way to help yourself. Just, which disengage. Is a, yeah. yeah, it's the only way. Because it, it will come back to bite you with the hearing. Right, you have to disengage from yourself, but not so much to look catatonic. Which, right, uh, but someone has to be in the right mindset to hear that. Sure. Right? If someone's not, if I have a client who is truly in a place where, you know, they are just, they're not able to conceive, understand what's happening to them. That's a much more, much harder conversation, if I can even have the conversation at all. So there are some times where that's not even a possible, possible have. Question that comes up a lot though is then how does that person consent to legal services? How do they hire you as an attorney if they're not competent? Like if they're not saying that you know they have no idea what's happening, how do they hire you as an attorney? Um, generally, what happens is you know we we try to talk to them if we feel that they can sign, they can they can hire me as a counsel. I will. If not, then in that case, I actually am an advocate, but it's usually the family hiring. Right, and I'm advising the family on what to do, and I may meet with the person possible. Let me meet with them, but a lot of times, then I'm advising the family. Um, so that the issue does come up sometimes that there are people who are in a situation like this where they can't even sign a legal document to, to acknowledge, like, yeah, well, legal services. Well, that that's interesting because that actually goes into what was my question. It's it's probably what you would have gone to next anyway as a next mm-hmm. logical point. I mean, when you are hired to represent the client, whether it's by the client directly or for, by the family, because the person has been deemed incapable, or maybe yeah. maybe they just didn't have the money to afford it and the family hired you anyway, you know, it, with criminal defense, it's easy. Someone hires you, you're there to zealously advocate for your client. It's the state's burden of proof. It, it's, it's people don't like the hears, but it, it isn't your job to consider what's best for society. You have to leave that at home. That's the state's job. You're there to help help your client and maybe something else might be in their best interest like a plea bargain or something like that but you you know you don't get ultimately you don't get to make that decision in in this case where you're someone who doesn't maybe have capacity or maybe it's in their best interest to enter into the settlement voluntarily agree to some sort of plan which will get them discharged in a couple of weeks but they'll do outpatient or go through some program or whatever but they absolutely don't want to uh, even if family is the one paying you, I mean, I guess you still represent the client, just like if you're, you know, someone's mother pays for you for your murder charge, you still represent the client. What do you do? Do you, do you have to then, if the client says, nope, I want to fight this, do you have to fight it? Or do you have more of a counselor role than attorney role where you can do what you think is in the person, the person's best interest because their capacity isn't a hundred percent adjudicated yeah. yet? You're almost like a so- ward. That's a really good question. And I think you hit me on the head is it's the best interest of the client. If the person is able to have a rational conversation with me, if they're able to understand what's happening, if they're able to discuss with me, you know, and, and we feel they have capacity, as you said, to agree to legal representation. Yeah. I might have a conversation with them and say, Hey, look, you know, here's, here's the best way. Here's how we can expedite this, get you out of here. Right. We want to, we want to present the plan in the hospital, show that there's a plan, a place for you to go when you leave. You know, they're going to be looking to see that you're going to, you know, be accepting of treatment. I've lost a hearing with a, I'm at an LJ, at a, at a you know, a voluntary commitment hearing. I've lost a hearing before because the judge said, look, at the end of the day, 
you know, yes, there's a caring family on the community. Yes, they have, she has a home to go to. The problem is that there is members of the family, including her own parents, who don't believe in psychiatric care, who don't believe in, in psychiatric medicine. And she is here in the hospital and she's refusing psychiatric medicine. So how can I release her? Because she's going to go back out and there's not going to be a treatment. She's not going to get the treatment she needs. The parents are not going to make sure she gets, she gets treatment needed. Sorry. Like that makes her a risk to herself. You know, if, you know, there's certain, and especially that becomes the case when there's underlying medical conditions. In addition to what are psychiatrically sure. going on, if someone has diabetes or um, a urinary tract infection or some other you know, illness or disorder medically that would kill them or significantly harm them if they're not on medication and they're refusing medication, are they a danger themselves then? I've lost a case where the judge said, I believe they are. So I have to agree with the hospital, right? So yeah, there are times where I have to talk to the person and say, look, I want to get you out of here. The best way we can do this is we, we work with the hospital to get you out of here. Then we get you out of here faster. There are other times, yeah, where the person's like, nope, I don't agree to anything. I'm not agreeing to it. You know, won't do it. You know, like any representation of any type, any field of law, you know, if there are, I think this has happened once where if I feel like I'm truly in a position where I can't do anything to help the person, where they won't listen to legal advice, where I, there's nothing I can do to make things better here, then it might be that I have to say, look, I can't help for them. To get Victorians back to work and grow the economy, Jobs Victoria is backing small businesses and job seekers. There are free services to help employers find and hire staff, including up to $20,000 wage subsidies. And for job seekers, there's free support to connect you to jobs, training and careers counselling. So if you're looking for work or workers, Jobs Victoria is ready to back you. Find out more at jobs.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Right. Um, that can happen, though it's rare. Um, it's more along the lines of, I give my advice and we try to figure out what the best way is. But yes, there are some times where someone will say to me, I don't care. I want to go to hearing on this. I'm going to fight this. Okay. okay. Like we're we probably going to lose. Okay, fine. Let's do it. Okay. And I, you know, and I'll explain, I'll go through what's going to happen if we lose and what will happen, what we're looking to try to do. And they will make an educated decision. I will inform them, right. I'll make sure that if they have their consent, I'll inform them of all the rights and, and, and ramifications and they'll make a decision. Um, that's when they're able, right? You said, as you said, they're, they're competent to make that decision. If they're not, you know, I'm consulting the family. Um, you know, again, in that case, if I'm consulting the family and the person's not competent to be able to hire me as an attorney, I'm not necessarily their attorney in that case, but I am the attorney of the family trying to help them saying, this is what we should do. We should ask for this. We should do this. So, you know, so I'm working it that way. So yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm an advocate, not a direct attorney. Right. And, and, and there's parallels in other areas of law. I mean, I use the criminal mm -hmm. defense one where there really isn't, where I suppose there could be in some cases, but it's attenuated. But there there yeah. are in other cases like estates where you might represent some relatives and not the estate itself or the estate itself and not certain relatives who have claims or in a, in a, in a divorce or other family situation, you might represent, you might be the, the attorney that represents minor children while there's uh, attorneys on either side for uh, you know, the, the divorcing parties or the separating parties. And there might be other attorneys for the, for the sets of grandparents who want to have grandparents' rights. So that's, you know, and, and sometimes you can work together and sometimes you can't. Um, 
So it's it's maybe not as unusual as it sounds. There's just sort of the right. added layer of whether the client can really understand or consent. But sometimes we just do the best we can within the bounds that have been drawn for us by the courts and the codes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that, that is. Always, and I would say that that's that you hit the nail on the head there. Is that's what it is. You do the best you can in situations to try to help as best as you can. Um, this is not. As with anything with criminal law too, it's never easy. There's never a straightforward answer. You know, there is a lot of nuances and every case is different. Right. That, that's for sure. Um, all right. So we've sort of taken it to when the family gets involved or when it's in, uh, involuntary, you know, someone calls the, the, the police or whomever. Uh, mm-hmm. And let's get to the point where, uh, I, I mean, I assume if you win the hearing, the, the state, I guess, can appeal, but probably rarely does. Uh, but if you lose the hearing, I assume that your client uh, has a right to a, an appeal. So in a private setting, um, you know, yeah. So what would happen is, and this has happened again, you know, we've lost a hearing. And I meet with a family and the, and the individual, I'm like, what do you want to do? You know, we could try to appeal at the circuit court, try to, you know, fight this. Um, for me, what I'm often telling people, though, is that the time and the expense to do this is not necessarily worth it because most of the time, in my opinion, honestly, is if someone is there in that situation, it's because something's going on. They do need help. There is some sort of psychiatric issue happening. You know, I'm a firm believer in modern medicine and doctors are not out to be evil people. They are out to fit, you know, help their patients. They, that is their. That is what they do. So it does not. I've never had a situation where the doctor's like, "I'm going to hold this person just because I want to hold them here." No, they. They're like, "I want to treat the person and get them better." And then once I get them better or get them a place where they're stabilized, I can get them out of here. So often I'll say, "We can go that route," but what's the harm in helping this person get some treatment for the next couple of weeks? They can rest. You know, we can get them stabilized. We can get them on meds. We can have time to develop a plan for them to in the community for a place to go, you know, get, you know, something outside therapy set up if needed, whatever, whatever is needed. Get that in place. The hospital gets them stabilized. The hospital feels they're a good place. We get them out. Practical right? question but yes, for you. I would say generally that if they if they win the hearing, then yes, they generally can walk out then okay. shortly thereafter. Yeah. A practical question on the appeal situation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes if you're appealing a a civil judgment, you can post a bond or whatever. In a criminal uh, appeal, sometimes you can post bail, bond, whatever, and and you can go out. In in this situation, if you post an appeal, if you if you file an appeal, is there any scenario where you can be released home, or are you going to be in the institution anyway pending the appeal? That's the thing. Is that if you lose, then you're going to be sitting in the institution until the appeals are so a lot of times it's just pragmatically practically speaking by the time you file the appeal write the brief there's the count the brief get it here right that 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 could take whatever months and the 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 person already is discharged uh so if they just if they just cooperated or even as it becomes moot by the time the appeal Mm -hmm. gets heard. correct i've had that happen where a family was saying okay we're gonna appeal so we're, we're so angry about this and I was like, okay. So we started talking about doing it. We, we, we you know, we started laying out the groundwork. How we're going to do this? Um, we started preparing the paperwork, uh, all that. And all of a sudden, we got a phone call. They're releasing the person. Wow. Done. It's over. 
So I generally do find that there are times, obviously, where an appeal can make sense. But again, I'm a firm believer, at least in the civil setting, um, not necessarily always the criminal, but in the civil setting, that if someone's there in the facility, yeah, of course there can be times where it's the right thing to release them. But there are other times where, honestly, the best thing that can be is they get the medication and get the treatment they need. And then we get them out and they're much better positioned going back out in the community um, than they were before. Yeah, I'm sure there's times when it's when it's important. I mean, if first of all, the person, you know, actually is getting sort of railroaded, but yeah. if, they, if they have a security clearance or, or you know, yeah. a, a, something pending that, that, you know, maybe they are involved in a, in a custody battle and this, you know, this obviously some sort of psychiatric finding against mm-hmm. them would, you know, obviously put them, you know, supervise. So I can think of circumstance, but yeah, I understand. I will. I will tell you though that I've walked into uh, civil facilities, uh, private facilities, to meet with my client, and I discovered that they haven't been given the right to sign a voluntary, and they were perfectly capable of signing voluntary, right? And at that point, then I'm going to the doctor, and this has happened three times, um, where I'm going to the doctor, and I'm like, "Did you give them a voluntary?" No, I did not give them a voluntary. Okay, we required under the law to give them a voluntary. Why didn't you give them a voluntary? Well, you know, if we give them a voluntary, then they're going to trigger the, the time, the 72-hour waiting period, and then they'll be, then we'll have to release them. We really think we want to hold them and treat them. And I'm like, okay, so give them the voluntary. And if they reject the voluntary, you know, there's a process for that. But I've literally gotten to the point where the doctor and I are at it. I'm like, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to call. My next call is going to be the general counsel of, like, let's say, John Hopkins, their office. And I'm going to say, your doctors are over here violating their own law. Right. And, I, and I'm like, the next call you're going to get is from the general counsel being like, what the hell are you doing? Right. Part of my language. But, um, you know, I've had that happen where that when it comes to being a, 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 a kind of a vigilant advocate, sometimes you do have to be very aware of what's happening because sometimes whether it's intentional or unintentional, the rules are not being followed and the person's rights are being um, are violated. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm sure it's all over the place, and then there's a circumstance for everything. I just was wondering about the uh, appeal rights, and it sounds like yeah. even in your best case scenario of appeal, that the, the sometimes the practical realities of it sort of almost yeah. argue against or dictate against it, no matter what. And you might as well save the however much it would cost to hire someone like you to write the appeal and ar- argue appeal. That's the problem. That's yeah. the big problem I think as well is in that is that by the time you go to the expense in time of doing the appeal, um, there are most, a lot of times, at least I would say in the, in the, the private setting, for example, um, this issue is being resolved, you know, or, or, you know, you're really fighting something where the person's getting beneficial health treatment that they need that's in their best interest. Um, so yeah, I agree. I do. There are times where, yeah, it is worth it fighting it. Um, but again, I generally find personally, others may disagree, that because the doctors and the hospitals are looking to just treat the person and get them out, they're not looking to hold this person long term. That's not something they want to do. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I would like to get into, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to, I mean, I don't know if there's any sort of big picture areas where you, where you can discuss, you know, some of the things that, the common things you see that, uh, mental health practitioners and practices sure. see that, that, you know, are sort of easy things to avoid or, or, 
like a checklist that they should uh, at least consider doing uh, other than call an office such as yours. Um, but yeah, something like that tie, tied to mental sure. health. And then I have a, have a follow up on another point that hopefully I'll remember by then. So I would say that when you're starting or running a mental health practice, there's any number of list of things you should do initially. Uh, one of the things I'm always surprised by when someone comes to my office or comes to meet with me, um, and sometimes it'll happen, they'll say, well, I've been in practice for 20 years and, you know, I just want to make sure I'm doing things the right way. And I'll say, great, do you have a registered business entity or liability protection? And they're like, no, what's that? And I say, okay, so that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you want to make sure you have some sort of liability protection, an LLC, S-Corp, something like that. Depending on the state, you know, California, um, I know, has very specific um, entities that um, uh, professionals have to use. Maryland has the LLC, the S-Corp, that type of thing. Um, I always say to clients, you need to have your team together. You need, you know, it's who you hire within your practice is as equally important as who you are hiring outside your practice. So if you're running a practice, you really need to have an accountant. You need to have a bookkeeper. You need to have an attorney. Um, you may want to have uh, an HR person. Um, you know, so you want to assemble your team. You want to make sure you have your documentation together. Yes. One of the things that sets healthcare and, you know, mental health practices, I think, apart or makes them specialized is that there are all sorts of ethical rules and federal and state laws you must follow. There's paperwork that you must give. Um, a new law was just passed, you know, just came enacted as of January this year, the No Surprises Act, that governs, you know, you know surprise medical billing. So now practices that are not doing insurance have to give what's called a good faith estimate. As part of their package, right. um, there's informed consent. What's in your informed consent? You have to make sure all that's correct. Um, if you're doing any sort of outdoor therapy or teletherapy, usually there's consent and waivers regarding to that. So there's all these things you kind of have to put in place. One of the things I see that's coming up a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and this is true for across, I think, for other jurisdictions too, is the issue of mandated reporting. What happens when you have, you know, you're in session, whether it's an adult or a minor, and they say. You know, when I was a kid, I was sexually molested by this by my uncle, right? Or it's a kid who says, my, you know, my uncle came over this weekend and sexually molested me. What do you do? Well, Maryland, in my opinion, is very clear about it. It says you have to report it, right? There's various guidelines. Um, I find that not all clinicians are even aware that they, the full extent of the law. In Maryland, it says you have to file a report with the local agency, the DSS, and you also have to file a report with the attorney general's office. Most times, a lot of times, I'd say, I mean, practitioners are like, well, I did this, I did, I, I filed a report with the DSS. One, like, but not the other. The, yeah, did you follow the AG? No, is it supposed to? Yeah, you are. And I pull up the code, it's right there. Right. Um, so there are topics like that, you know, informed consent, um, mandate reporting, um, Things like that, that if you're running a mental health practice, you must have policies on how to deal with this. You must know how to handle these things because they're going to come up. Psychiatric emergencies is another one. Um, There's got to be software yeah, that has uh, like checklist red flags you haven't done mm -hmm. this. Yes. EHRs are so such a great tool, such a great development in the world of mental health care to have EHRs in place. I'm sorry, electronic health record systems. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. That's so. It's like I just so used to saying it. Um, it. Where it does everything, it stores all the files. There's a patient portal. You send the dockets right through it. Um, you can do teletherapy through it. Um, it's it's a great invention. It goes back to what your original point was 
about cybersecurity, though, is that you have a system that has all this information that you have to really be careful with protecting it. Um, you know, so yeah, I think that there's a number of different things as a practice owner. I often tell practice owners too to be aware of when you when they go through training, whether it's either a site, you know, become a psychologist or a therapist or a social worker, whatever it is, they and you want to start a practice, you're not just a you're not just a healthcare professional anymore. You're a CEO, you run a business. There is a business side of it and there's a healthcare side of it. Right. And a lot of the practitioners I meet with, especially when they have larger practices or they want to become larger practices, I'm like, you've got to start thinking, you got to put your CEO cap on. There are times where you're going to have to make decisions as a CEO that are not going to be pleasant or you're not going to be comfortable with as a clinician, like hiring or firing people. You know, there's um, a lot of therapists will tell me that there's a taboo. There's some sort of reluctance somewhat in the community to charge money to make money doing this that it's almost distasteful in some ways to be making money off people suffering but i'm like look this is a needed health service you run a business you're entitled to make money you're entitled to charge for your services so stop being afraid to make money stop you know if someone owes you money or you know don't you know just because you don't want to offend them and you know don't not collect payment that's how you run into the problems later on. So yeah. there is, there's a whole mindset when it comes to running a practice that goes far beyond just being a therapist. If you're going to own or run a practice, does that, that answer your question? Am I, does that work? Sure, absolutely. I have, okay. a, I have a question. I mean, it, it, it boggles my mind. You know, especially with COVID, everything is tele, 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 zoom, zoom, mm-hmm. zoom, and now there's all these, you know, internet therapy places how can the, the state or federal government practically regulate this at all how can they even i mean even if they should even if the even if the site says say you enter the state of maryland okay we've connected you with a maryland licensed practitioner if, if the company is based out of Let's just say it's based out of Switzerland, okay? And let's just say the practitioner is, I don't want to offend anyone, it's on uh, unflagged vessel in international waters or it's smack dab (laughs) in the center of Antarctica but has internet connection. Um, You know, how do you you regulate that when it's not exactly clear where anybody is, if they're licensed, you know? I I mean, and and it's like Uber and... Uh, you know, Airbnb. It's already out there. It's 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 already well, out. <laughs> I, I would tell you that every state, Maryland included, to do to practice in it, you have to be licensed, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're with you know one of the internet mental health services or you're with a practice in Maryland, you know, or California or wherever, Wisconsin. Um, you, their licenses, mental health mental health practitioners like us attorneys are state specific. Right. So you could be in multiple jurisdictions. You would have licenses in sure. multiple states. But the point is, like Maryland, for example, says, you know, if you're treating a Maryland client, you need to be licensed in Maryland. You know, there are, I'm not even going to go into it, but I'm sure people might be listening and say, well, there are certain compacts or certain agreements where you can be in one state licensed and be doing therapy in another state. You know, that's true. I don't want to get into that, but that's a whole nother way of doing it. But there are a whole number of different protocols and rules you have to follow. So, yes, I agree that you could be in international waters dealing this. You could be in the beach, you know, doing therapy. If you're licensed in Maryland practitioner and you're seeing a Maryland client that's in Maryland and you're doing teletherapy, that's fine. It's okay, right? That's 
not, I don't see that that's necessarily the issue, but I do hear what you're saying, which is that this is, you're entrusting your protected health information to a international company that may not store the records in Maryland. You have no idea who's backing them. Um, a lot of times these startups, these internet health um, or mental health sites, they're backed by, if not Wall Street money, by venture capitalists, by, they're, they're backed by people with very deep pockets. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is, it's already happened in the medical world, is that, and I don't want to offend anyone, but just to be stereotypical, like, you know, Wall Street, you know, big money has realized that there's big money to be made in mental health. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. So that's why you're seeing a, a prevalence of these things popping up now, because they're realizing, hey, look, we can make a lot of money by connecting people with therapists through our, our site, right? And we get paid, and then we'll pay the therapist, you know, however much we're going to pay them. Often it's not very much. Um, so that's the problem, though, is that you're trusting the medical, medical uh, the healthcare information to something. Let me and ask. And you don't know necessarily what they're going to do with what they're doing with it. Let me ask you your thoughts on this, and, and, and this is a, a less nefarious uh, mm-hmm. scenario that I, I, if I didn't say it, I alluded to in my, in my prior mm-hmm. question. Sure. And this is, you know, and, and we're going to do two parallel ones. The first one is completely innocuous. I'm I'm on vacation. Let's pretend that Jeff goes on vacation. I don't remember last time I really had, but let's say I go on vacation mm-hmm. and I go to the Swiss Alps. Again, Switzerland. Sorry, Switzerland. I don't know why I'm picking on you today. I break, you know, I have a breakdown. I have a panic attack. I go to see a, a therapist, a psychiatrist, psychologist in Switzerland. They're licensed in Switzerland, obviously not in Maryland. I'm seeing them. I went to go see them. They're like, I don't have to be licensed in Maryland. Of course not. I'm in Switzerland. You came to me. No issue with that. So on the internet, you go onto the site, you go find me a therapist and Basically, they pair you up with someone in Switzerland, and the person in Switzerland says, "No, of course I'm not licensed in Maryland." Or they don't say it. This is this is the un, unsaid part. They came to me. They called me. I'm not expected to go to Maryland. I mean, is there any policing of that? I mean, I presume on these yeah. things you say, sure. "What state do you need services in Maryland?" And somebody somewhere says, "Yes, we warrant and represent that, that our therapist is licensed in your state," right. but. I mean, aside from breach of contract or whatever, is there, is there, I mean, is it, is it humanly possible for the state and or federal governments and who even has jurisdiction, I guess the state, for the Maryland Department of Health to go out and, you know, go to Sarah, okay. Santa Clara or whatever and, and, and look into that? Okay. I'm a, so we're theoretically here. So theoretically, I would, I would, I don't want to use the word I assume, but I would posit that. You know, every state, Maryland, I'm going to use again, you mentioned the top, of the top of the podcast, you know, Maryland's where I have, where I can reference everything to. In Maryland, you have the various licensing boards. They control the licensing in Maryland. They control who's practicing in Maryland. I would argue that theoretically, Maryland and or the federal government would have the ability to say, well, you're practicing without a license in Maryland. Right? That's a big issue. Mm-hmm. We're going to investigate you. Um, so now to your point, well, if you're in an international border, if you're in a totally different country, the business is centered in a totally different country. How does that happen? I think you're right that there's probably very difficult to 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 go after someone in that case if they're really doing something nefarious. It probably would involve a combination of some sort of state and federal um, 
collision. And, and we all know that death doesn't always work that well. It takes a long time to the fun of it, and may some, nothing may come of it. The I guess the best recourse would be to say, well, if you're a therapist, it doesn't matter where you are, what where if you're in you know uh, the dead middle of the desert or an island or you know off the coast of California or whatever, you know if you're treating Maryland clients, you need to be you know licensed in Maryland. You need to have Maryland license. Yeah, I would agree that would be a best practice for the practitioner. That's probably the best, you know. And I would think to these these companies, it would be to their benefit, and they probably do, I would assume, that it's too much liability to not be verifying this information. I would think so. I mean, there there are legal there are legal services companies and they make sure that their 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 attorney networks are licensed in in those particular states and things like that. And I presume there are similar safeguards. Uh, and I, I will tell you. I want to tell you that there is something in this scenario that's come up, though, that is challenging, and that's where you have a Maryland therapist who's treating someone. They work for the federal government, generally it's federal government, right? Or it could be a private company, mm-hmm. and they move abroad. Right. Now, let's say the now let's say the patient is in the client is in Switzerland, right? Right, and that's where they live now. And the therapist, I've had therapists come to me and say, "I'm a Maryland therapist. This is a Maryland resident. Can I treat them?" No, because they're not a Maryland resident anymore. And on top of that, now if something goes wrong, if there's a psychiatric emergency, it's the Swiss system that's that's going to be involved. And you don't know Swiss law. You're not. You know. You don't have jurisdiction in Swiss Switzerland. So it becomes a very much very very uh, sticky issue at that point. You know. Um, and I always say it's it's really dangerous. I think it's a really big liability risk for a practitioner of a, you know, regardless of what state you're in, to be doing therapy with somebody who's in another country. Um, unless you're just like you said, unless you're there vacation. Yeah, I mean, I could do hypotheticals all day long. I'm sure you yeah, can sure. too. We're sort of trained to do it, and I, I should probably stop on that. I mean, I guess if if you feel like you're getting a benefit and a health, uh, you know, a help from from that kind of service, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess it's best to continue. But check with your own physician if if you have yeah. one, and probably if you're if you have any lingering concerns about it, probably best to find someone local that you know is licensed and subject to the, yeah, if you can. Um, so that's probably as far as either one of us can go with, you know, medical or healthcare advice period. Uh, if even that, um, the, whatever point I had or question I had some time ago, I lost it. It's probably long gone. And and that's probably a sign of my mental health. Um, uh, I, you know, hopefully it wasn't too important. Uh, but I did want to, uh, you know, I guess the the, the $64,000 question adjusted for inflation is if you were to be able to change certain things in the system uh, with the proactivity, with the intervention, uh, would you be have it parent control? Would you have it school control? Would you have it uh, someone's treating physician control, uh, author- uh, first responders? You know, how would you like to have it? Fixed. I mean, I think that there's hazards with all, all of those, to be frank, but you can't have a committee, you know, a five person committee, you know, on a, trying to adjudicate preventative measures on, on every human being on Earth. Um, that would be so. I, I mean, is there a solution or any or are there any proposals out there that would at least not fix, but help things out? You know, it's one of those things where. I had this conversation like two weeks ago with someone and they made a good point. They're like, it's really kind of like the Middle East peace, <laughs> right? You know, everyone wants it. 
but no one really knows quite how to do it, right? There's lots of suggestions. Some are good. Some, you know, actually put into effect and work or don't work. And But, you know, nobody's ever yet been able to figure out a actual permanent workable solution. Um, and I feel like that's sort of the same thing here is there's, I, you mentioned a number of different resources, parents, doctors, government. Um, I think all have a role, um, can have a role. Um, I think that the direct relationship between parent and doctor, parent and practitioner, therapist, um, when you're dealing with a minor, um, is super important. Super important. You know, getting mental health, someone's going to get mental health treatment if they are feel like they're supported. If they're constantly surrounded by people who are saying, like, you know, it's a crock and, you know, it's, you know, BS and there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to get up, you know, point, like you said earlier, pull yourself up by your boots, just get over with it, right? Yeah, I think that that person's going to be less likely to be in their home. I think that that relationship, the willingness of the people around the person in need treatment to help get them treatment and the, the ability of them, especially as a minor, to correspond to work with the practitioner is super important. I do agree with you that the role of government, right? There are times where something goes wrong and someone is in dire need of psychiatric care and, you know, the government is not adequate in its response. I think one of the things that comes to my mind that's been raised before is, uh, and this is not in any way to knock against them, but making sure police officers have better training about how to help when, when they come across someone who's truly psychotic, someone who's truly mentally ill, who's truly, you know, and this can happen. Someone goes off their meds and they're in a community and they have no idea what's happening and they are in dire need of psychiatric assistance. The police's response too often is too aggressive mm -hmm. and that can be very triggering. And what happens is my wife worked for almost 15 years in the state mental hospital as a, psych as a, 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 a psychologist evaluating people. She would always see, she doesn't know them. I would see people where they'd come in and they'd have charges and then have multiple additional charges because they have assaulted police officers, they arrest, all this stuff because they're being now arrested because they hit the police officer because they don't know what's happening. They see someone show up with a gun, someone being aggressive in their face, and it triggers them. And so they react violently it compounds the charges they're facing. And now they're going to jail for a long time on multiple charges. And what they really need is mental health treatment. And so, yeah, I do think there's, there's components that all, all of those things can play. The problem I think is that they don't talk to each other. They don't, they don't work well together. Right. That's what I would fix. How do they, how does the system interact with each other? How do we make that better? That's what I'd want to fix. Yes, and then the next challenge would be privacy rights and then yeah, cybersecurity. But we're we're not even going to try to do that here. That's right, right. That, that's that's above our pay grade and and too right. high for you know, too much for this show. Um, I I think that we can say a couple things that are non controversial. One is don't give up on yourself. If you don't be ashamed. If you need if you think you need help, you're probably right. Don't be ashamed to ask for it. If you're not, if you don't know a professional or have access, talk to someone who will, whether it's your family or your friends, if you trust them, your employer, whatever it is, you know, try, try to get help. Don't, don't be ashamed. I am a 
middle-aged person with a professional degree who more or less functions in this world. And I take a pill at night and a, and a pill in the morning to, to keep my head from spinning like a top. And I just said it to the world and to, you know, the aliens and the cosmos, whoever's going to hear this in 23 million light years. Um, <laughs> if you are someone who needs the intervention and the authorities have not been helpful, don't give up. You never know which straw is going to break the camel's back. If you, maybe it's just a different officer or responder, or maybe they have their own sort of internal, okay, if it happens three times, then, then I know it's real versus one. And maybe it's just that someone acting out or trying to jam up their, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, mother, father, whatever. Um, so, you know, just keep trying no matter how frustrating it may be. And if possible, whenever possible, keep your cool. Those are my uh, those are my dime store tidbits of Sound advice. Nice. Okay, neither one of us, of course, is mental health care professional, but he's yeah. married to one. Um, all right, Dan, thank you so much. Tell the folks sure. where they can find you, your your mm-hmm. business, your website, your sure. podcast, and any anything that you want to sure. tell the folks about. So uh, I do uh, my podcast as well. Um, I work with a practitioner, actually, she's my co-host, and we do a a podcast for mental health practitioners that covers the ethical, legal, um, compliance side of things. You can find it at protectingyourpractice.com for all details. And if you want to contact me, if you want to find me directly, you can go to my website, myself, uh, Daniel Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R, DanielMayerLaw.com. And um, there's ways to just submit a uh, information if you have a question or anything like that feel free to reach out and uh, we'll be in touch um, and uh, yeah that's about it sounds great alright folks well thank you very much for tuning in this week please subscribe to get the show you have to subscribe to Garden of Doom you can either subscribe to the Garden of Doom feed on anywhere major podcasts are or you can go to the Wrestling Soup Network and subscribe to Hammerlock Hangover and you'll get that fine wrestling podcast as well as Garden of Doom and Garden Views which is the show you're listening to right now. If you don't like wrestling, then, you know, I mean, it's doing me a solid if you subscribe to all three, but, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, subscribe to Garden of Doom. I promise you, even if you don't like one show, you're going to like another. There's a lot of variety there. There's something for everyone, I promise. Um, Rate, review, give us stars, tell your friends. This is sort of an algorithmically challenging set of shows. Um, so referrals and stars and reviews are very helpful. Uh, anyway, thank you for paying attention. I hope that you found this informative, if not educational, and hopefully a little bit entertaining as well. We thank once again, Dan Mayer for joining us and listen to us next week when we have another episode of Garden Views. This song is a title tune for my latest LP, which is entitled Wake Up Everybody. I'm sure you will all things that need to be done in this country today. So what I'd like for you to do is listen very carefully and see what you can do to lend a hand. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed, no more back thinking, time for so very much from what it used to be there's so much hatred more and
To get Victorians back to work and grow the economy, Jobs Victoria is backing small businesses and job seekers. There are free services to help employers find and hire staff, including up to $20,000 wage subsidies. And for job seekers, there's free support to connect you to jobs, training and careers counselling. So if you're looking for work or workers, Jobs Victoria is ready to back you. Find out more at jobs.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.